Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. Russia's late February invasion of Ukraine has unleashed a devastating and ongoing humanitarian crisis. In Ukraine, that's meant thousands of civilian deaths in horrible conditions. At least 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country, and nearly 7 million are internally displaced. Beyond Ukraine, the conflict is upending the global economy, deepening pressure on vulnerable households who are still reeling from the pandemic. And with Russia and Ukraine as major exporters of wheat, the war could destabilize the global food supply and has prompted the UN to warn that food insecurity could rise. The war has affected the global economy just as many key macroeconomic indicators were beginning to inch toward normalcy after two years of the pandemic. In March, the OECD released an in-depth report on the economic and social impacts and policy implications of the war in Ukraine. The OECD estimates that global economic growth will drop by more than one percentage point this year due to the conflict, and already high inflation could rise by an additional 2.5 percentage points globally. I'm Karina Pizer, and you're listening to OECD Podcasts. Today, I'm joined by OECD Chief Economist and Deputy Secretary General Laurence Boone, who will discuss the conflict's humanitarian and economic implications and detail the OECD's recommendations for how governments can help insulate their populations from the impact. The crisis is first and foremost a human tragedy. Uh, in addition to the distressing civilian death toll, Russia's invasion has sparked a massive refugee crisis. And EU countries have readily welcomed a lot of fleeing Ukrainians, but I'm curious if you can give us a sense of what more governments can do to assist refugees and help them stay afloat. So refugees, as you say, is, is, is the most um, terrible thing that's happening with the war. And what they need when they come in is actually support in terms of uh, emergency help, housing, Medicare, and also what's super important, it's schooling for the young kids and a permanent education link for older students. And all of this, by the way, the OECD is working to help them. Just one last thing as well. If you're refugees, you come up and your money is in Ukraine. So they also need the support of the European Central Bank and the European Commission to be able to access their savings. And are these policies that governments have started to implement or is it too early? Uh, so they have started to implement those policies. They also have the experience of the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. And if you look at how this was managed, I would say the top of the class in terms of taking care of refugees is, has been Germany at this time. And they really did that. Housing, Medicare, schooling, education, language courses uh, for people. Of course, all of this costs money. Um, if if we were doing the same thing for the Ukrainian refugees uh, as Germany did for the Syrian refugees, for the five million or nearly five million people now in the EU, it would cost altogether about half of half a point of EU GDP. So that's a significant wow. amount of money that should be shared among EU members. There's also, you know, a lot of economic consequences, which, of course, have effects on populations. Um, and one area is inflation levels. The pandemic had already sent inflation to record heights. And for many people, especially in vulnerable households, it's been extremely difficult to afford even basic necessities. Now that's becoming an even greater challenge, especially as energy prices continue to rise. 
How can governments help the public uh, deal with the burden of rising costs and what are the different types of support they can provide? So it's true that the lower the income levels and the more one spends on energy and food, and for some households it may be even more than half of their uh, budget. Governments have put in place a variety of measures um, to help vulnerable people and firms as well, because you don't want firms to run into difficulty because of, of these high energy prices too. So they've put in place a variety of measures. Um, what we think is the most important is actually to make sure that the people who need this money are being well targeted. Um, and it's usually some income support so that they can afford the food and the energy bill that they will have. Um, by contrast, you know, general tax cut or such as general VAT cut is, is, or general checks to all type of people is, is not always great. It, it costs a lot more money and it doesn't target really the people who, who need it. And you want to keep this market price, the signal that the price is sending so that there can be a reallocation of you know, for example, cheaper cereals or more abundant cereals um, or cheaper form of energy moving away from fossil fuels. So one has to strike the right balance between the support to people who need and the necessity to shift away from what is expensive. That makes a lot of sense. I also imagine that there isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach that different governments in different contexts, you know, need to adapt to their own um, landscape. Um, are there major policy differences across the EU? Yes, yeah, so there are differences across the EU and really, uh, especially in terms of vulnerable consumer, but also for firms, you would hope that there are some EU guidelines to make it cost efficient um, and also for firms to avoid competitiveness distortion, right? You, you wouldn't want one country really helping in a distorting way some types of, of firms. So there are differences. There are also different issues for Middle Eastern countries or Africa where you really want to focus on food more than bill. And here one has to pay attention about the logistics, bringing cereals from Europe or Australia to the Middle East, not always easy, and also make sure that there can be some harvest uh, across the world to, um, to have sufficient production of cereals. So you mentioned food costs and especially cereals, and that's, you know, we talk a lot about energy, and I think that's maybe what's dominated the news cycle to the greatest extent, but food prices are also skyrocketing. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat, and in the OECD's report, there's a really, there are a number of excellent infographics, but one, I think, of the most compelling ones illustrates the countries that are most reliant on importing wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And when you look at that chart, it's very clear that some of those countries that are most reliant have already been navigating economic crises. So I think of Turkey, South Africa, Tunisia. These are countries whose economic stability is, has been hard to come by for a while. Um, there's a lot of talk of how much of the world is reconsidering its dependence on Russian energy imports. Is there a kind of recalibration when it comes to food, or is that something you mentioned a little bit, and there are a lot of logistical questions, but how? what does that look like? Let's look at the timeline of, of issues for food. First, today, there is not a food crisis. There is potentially one if Russia and Ukraine cannot export their summer harvest 
or their spring harvest. Um, okay, so the first thing today is to make sure that Ukraine can actually harvest the cereals. And for that, the OECD is looking at how to provide um, tractors and help them actually do the harvest and then export what needs to be exported. Some of it will stay in Ukraine, obviously. So I think that's the first things. Really, we should focus on humanitarian and uh, industrial support for them to be able to harvest. Then there is, uh, you know, as you know, the world is global and there are other countries uh, growing cereals. And if you look at the various sources of countries, some of them have excess production compared to what was planned, like uh, Australia, there's also some um, in the US, for example. So in principle, there could be enough. Um, we don't know yet whether that will not be the case or not. But you need to bring these cereals. It's very easy to cross the Mediterranean from uh, Europe. It's another issue to make these cereal come from Australia or, or the US. And last but not least, I think um, a lot of countries start putting barriers to their export and to stockpile more than they would normally do. And that is a recipe for disaster, i.e. shortages of food. So I know it's very natural to do that and you want to protect people, but we shouldn't overdo it. You just talked a little bit about how for Europe things might look different than they do for Australia or the U.S. when it comes to, to food imports. Uh, the same is, I imagine, true for energy. Different countries have a different relationship um, with Russian energy supply. And here in Europe, I think the conflict can feel very close, both because geographically it is quite close, but also because of the reliance of EU countries on uh, Russian energy. In terms of uh, dealing with a looming energy crisis or perhaps a current energy crisis, what does the situation look like outside of Europe? You are right to say that Europe is very different on Russia, but uh, energy prices, uh, apart from gas, are global. So what we are seeing is a global rise in oil prices, just because there's less of oil production than there was before, less quantity, same demand, you know, it pushes prices up. Uh, same for coal prices. Um, and that has obviously some impact first on me, um, emerging and low-income countries because they will pay much higher their oil or, um, and that will push them into coal, which is not really good when we're trying to reduce emissions. And it will also affect their households and their firms. Um, so it's, it highlights the thing that not only... Um, there's a case for not being dependent on one country for your energy, but to have a diversity of countries providing energy. But I think it also really puts some um, spotlight on the fact that countries need to move away from fossil fuels, where there is a lot of dependency, towards more domestic national production. I'm not saying 100%, but a, a larger share that will be renewable and they will reduce their dependence uh, and they will be less cost um, to the end consumer. So we've all been thinking about the Ukraine crisis. Not too long ago, the international focus was elsewhere um, mm. on another global crisis, which is the pandemic, which has not gone away, as we know. Uh, much of the world is lifting restrictions and encouraging a return to normal, and that's the case at the OECD. Uh, but 
The virus is surging in a number of world regions. Um, in China, um, a recent spike in cases of the new variant has led to significant lockdown measures, which I imagine could carry their own economic implications. Um, so now that we have the Ukraine crisis kind of grafted onto this pandemic economy, uh, what can we expect from here? Um, and are we headed toward a financial crisis or? I, I think you're very right to highlight that the COVID crisis has not completely gone. We don't really know the evolution of those variants. And obviously, not all of the world populations vaccinated. Um, and there's still some economic impacts big for tourism, for travel, that has that is still uh, down compared to what it was before uh, the COVID pandemic. At the same time, we also have some countries persisting with a zero COVID policy, like China, which uh, not only is imposing a lockdown on his people, but that's also creating disruption to the global value chain. And that's adding to the inflationary environment that uh, you were describing. Now, if we take into account COVID and Ukraine and other tensions in the world, it's true it looks very uncertain and, and perhaps a little scary. Um, I think our big, one of our biggest concerns within this environment is effectively that, that we don't have the harvest we were just uh, discussing, that people put barriers to trade of this essential good that is food, um, that moving away from energy is very difficult, from fossil fuel energy or Russian energy. And, and therefore, emerging market economies or low-income countries get hurt more than what they are today, uh, in which case we could see a lot of pain, um, not only financial, um, but also humanitarian, you know, some of the big migration movement came also from hunger. So hopefully we're not there yet, but I think that's why it's super important to monitor very, very carefully the situation. Mm -hmm. and, and that question of uncertainty applies very much to the Ukraine conflict as mm -hmm. well. We, we all hope that it will end as soon as possible, but it could drag on for longer. What does that uncertainty in itself mean when we think about the economic outlook? So it it has, in my view, in our view, very um, devastating, maybe a big word, but very important consequences. Because to for firms to invest, for people to invest, um, you need certainty. You need to know roughly, or to to be able to have an idea of roughly where the world is going. What's your tax, regulatory landscape, trade landscape, who you can, you know, with how many countries you can trade and do business. So you need this kind of certainty. And obviously the war is the biggest uncertainty of all. And the risk is that it deters investment that is needed for people to have a job and economies to continue on growing and innovate. Thank you so much for joining me, Laurence. Thank you. It was a pleasure. To read the report and learn more about the OECD's work on the implications of the Ukraine crisis, please visit oecd.org economic-outlook. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com OECD.